First, I want to say a special thanks to those of you guys who came out and helped us do the mulch yesterday. Man, that was awesome. There were so many people there. It was done in 45 minutes, all those pallets of mulch, and everybody seemed to be having such a good time. I really appreciate that, you guys. Uh, before I jump into the teaching, I want to give a, just a real sh- you know, brief opportunity for anybody who's here just like to give a little testimony along these lines. Um, last week at the end of the service, I shared with you what I felt was a word from the Lord. And the word from the Lord was, I have a plan for you. Help is on the way. I received emails this week. I received comments from people about how that word was fulfilled in their life this week, how they saw the fulfillment of that. And I thought it'd just be cool if we just give one or two people just a chance to come up and, and uh, talk about that. I know it's kind of a big, like, uh, but is there anybody that like to do that? Hello. It's fine if you don't, but uh, all right. Dennis, you be the guy. Thank you. Come on up here. Stand up. I know, you thought you, you thought about it for a minute, then you knew better. God bless you, man. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, most of you know that I've had a rough couple of weeks. And things look pretty bleak from time to time. I want to thank all of you who have prayed diligently for me. During that bleakness, I had one hope. And his name was Jesus. And that's the truth. I laid on that table, one that I don't want to lay on again. And I kept just just saying Jesus. And we made it. And I'm here, a little worse for wear, but I'm here. The Lord came through for me. I should have been dead. But he came through for me. And you know what? I walked seven laps around Tuttle Mall last night. (laughs) Huh? That's good. Praise God. Now, are there anybody out there who's unsaved? I've got, I want to talk to you. I got stuff to tell you about Jesus. He's not kidding. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I love you, man. That's such a good word. I had such a difficult week this week. It seemed like everything was stacked against me from the very beginning. I felt like I began to understand what Job must have felt like. It started early in the week, and I was in the drive-thru at McDonald's. And uh, it was one of those that, you know, you get up to your turn, and you can pick the other lane. You know what I'm talking about? And so I stuck with where I was. That was my decision and cars behind me went around, and they got in front of me in line. I know. I just cried out, there is no justice in the world, Lord. I ordered two books from Amazon this week, and they said they'd be here in two to three days. It took five. And I said, Lord, why, why do bad things happen to good people? I was getting used to $1.79 gasoline. It shot up to two nineteen, And I said, Lord, why must the righteous suffer? 
We have so many problems, don't we? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Job, please. This is stop number 15 in the Through the Bible series. We're doing just surveys of these books following the same pattern. We'll look at the context. We'll look at the main points in a hot spot. Today we're in the book of Job. Let's start with the context. The context of the book of Job is that this is the oldest book of the Bible. This is the oldest book of the Bible. And... uh, and, and for those of you who are of the creationist uh, persuasion, young earth theory kind of people, um, Job's reference to the Leviathan and the behemoth uh, are, in your, according to your understanding, that understanding, uh, actually dinosaurs. There's a theory that, that men and dinosaurs shared the earth at the same time. Um, it's that old. Um, Fred Flintstone isn't specifically mentioned. In the... Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. Wow. Moses may have repurposed the book of Job. It's possible that it was actually... It's uh, traditionally given you know, mosaic authorship, but uh, it's probably older than Moses, and uh, he may have repurposed it. There's some problems with the language. Uh, was it not, the phrases aren't like Moses, and it's also some Arabic references that we would have no reason to think that Moses actually had any reference to. Um, and so the traditional authorship is a little bit in question if you want context. It's a true combination of wisdom and poetry, uh, you know, the Bible is set up so weird for us because we want everything linear, and it's set up so weird. You have the Pentateuch or the law and then the history and then what's called the poetry and the wisdom and the major prophets and the minor prophets and the gospels and the apocalypse. And so that's how the Bible is actually, the books of the Bible are actually organized. And this begins, the poetry section, like with Psalms, that just really strikes us as poetic, yeah? Yeah. Well, also, uh, the book of Job, as it reads, it actually has a very poetic nature to it. But it's also wisdom, isn't it? I mean, there are actually little pithy sayings within it that would qualify almost like Solomon's Proverbs. Um, but, so it's kind of a mix, but it really begins the, the poetry section. It's the only true theological work of the Old Testament. Um, apart from the book of Job... All of the theology, Old Testament theology we have, we have to infer from the other books. We have to kind of, you know, extend uh, the narrative of the Old Testament in order to really get theology. But, but Job stands apart from all the Old Testament uh, books in that way that it just, uh, um, you know, it actually talks about theological issues. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like the way the book of Romans in the New Testament is set apart from the Gospels or the book of Acts. You know, you're reading along this narrative and then the book of Romans says, here's who God is, boom. And it just just exists in stark contrast. And that's how the book of Job kind of of works too. And uh, the the theology of the book of Job is that obviously, maybe you don't know it, and it's okay if you don't. I'll tell you the story in just a second. But it deals with... It deals with the problem of good and evil in the world. Why, why is it even there? It um, makes it very clear that the, the universe is not a dualism. And by that, we don't mean that 
God and Satan are equal opposites, but Satan actually had to come and ask permission from God to do the things, and so it immediately tells us that they're not equal opposites, uh, but actually that Satan is, is, is subject to the will of God. And then the whole book really enforces the idea of the sovereignty of God, that in every, every situation, no matter how bad it may seem from our perspective, God's still in control. God's always in control. That's what, it, that's what this book really talks about. Um, the, really, if you, the story of Job goes like this. Uh, so it opens up with a conversation between God and Satan. And, and God says, what are you doing, Satan? And he says, well, I've been walking through the earth looking for somebody basically to harass and, and God, I don't know, you know, I, there's, I know this much about God, and so, so much of the Bible just mystifies me, because what happens next is God just throws Job under the bus, and he says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And it's like, thank you very little if you're, if you're Job, right? And, 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 and he says, uh, oh, the righteous man, you know, it's kind of this conversation that goes on, and God says, you know, you can't harass him to the point of his cursing me. And uh, Satan says, yes, I can if you will permit me. And God says, okay, well, you can harass him, but you can't touch him. You can touch everything around him. And so his whole family is wiped out. All of his, all of his goods are blown away. He loses everything, and, and, uh, and he doesn't curse God. And then Satan comes back and says, well, that's God because you didn't let me touch him. And he said, okay, touch him, but you can't kill him. And he touched him with horrendous boils on his whole body. And Job didn't curse God. And so this goes on, and Job is in this horrendous situation. He's, he's sick, he's lost everything. And uh, he has these guys who come along and they begin to counsel him. It says that they come to comfort him, they're his friends. And, um, you know, I, I'm a little, still a little puzzled by the whole thing because some of what they say makes sense to me. Does anybody get that? And there's, according to the Bible, they're saying bad things, but I'm not really smart enough to understand what's that bad about everything they're saying. But at the end, they're, so they're giving him counsel and he never curses God. And you can see threads of things that just don't seem right. But this goes on for a long time. I remember as a young believer thinking I was just a young adult, just new to Jesus, and I think, oh, I keep hearing these old people that, like I am now, you know, talk about Job. And I thought, I'm going to read that book. It shouldn't take long. And it's like, it's like three hours of reading. If you... And so this goes on and on and on. And then, uh, and then there's this cool exchange between God and Job. And then at the end, then what happens is that, that that God says to these three guys who had given him this counsel, you guys did not represent me. You did not speak words that represent me. And so what you guys need to do now is you need to go to Job. You need to make a sacrifice, and you need to ask Job to pray for you. And Job will pray for you, and he said, I will not treat you according to your folly. And so there's this beautiful picture there of someone intervening for them, right? Interceding for them. And then, uh, so that happens, and then Job gets all his stuff back, and he gets a whole new family. Three beautiful daughters, one of whose name was Karen, and I just love that. <laughs> Later. <laughs> Karen something, I forget the rest of it, but it's, it's Karen. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there you go. So uh, where was I? That's the story. The main stops, if we want to look at the book of Job in a survey way, I think there's some really great stuff that is certainly worth stopping for. And the first one is that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So this terrible thing is happening to Job. And in chapter 1, starting at verse 20, what happens when he loses everything? At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. This would be a common way to respond to adversity in old days. And then he fell to the ground, catch this, in worship. His response to his adversity was to fall to the ground before God in worship. In worship. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. Yeah? Blessed be your name in the desert, in the pain. Blessed be your name. He fell down in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll depart. So I, was, I didn't bring anything in. I'm not going to take anything out. Everything I have in between is by your command. So the sort of Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's God's universe. God gives, he takes away. And that doesn't mean that everything that goes away has been taken by the Lord. Sometimes we just make foolish decisions and things go away from us, right? So we do live with the consequences of our own folly. But there are times we can all relate to it's a time of of giving from God and then a time of taking away. Who knows what I'm talking about? And this is the hand of the Lord. This speaks to the sovereignty of God. That in the midst of whether it's a season of receiving or a season of things going away, it's the sovereignty of God. We've all enjoyed gain and we've all suffered loss. The second main stop here is when, when Job says, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So his wife's still around, Job's lovely wife, who says um, in verse 9 of chapter 2, his wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just get it over with. Curse God and die. You know, there's kind of a, an appealing sound to that when you're in a trial, isn't there? Let's just get it over with. Let's just have it out. And he replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. I love the way the Old Testament guys talk to their wives, don't you? I'm implementing this at my house. And so far it hasn't been working out that well, but I'm just using the biblical model. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we? I just lost the whole Karen thing, didn't I? I just, like, I just spent it. I got it and I gave it away. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Man. And he replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? He's saying if God is indeed sovereign, then he has authority over good and bad. Full authority. We don't like to think of God that way in America. Because we got got a bunch of things messed up. But I mean, uh, he said, should we accept good from God and not evil? I mean, why is there even evil here? What's going on? And and um, uh, uh, within the realm of God's sovereignty, God gives us a, r- a range of choices, doesn't he? We are, we are created. C.S. Lewis said that the reason that there's evil in the world, one of the things, great things that he said, is because the only kind of love that God wanted was love that we would have to choose to give him. And in giving us the, the, the potential, the nature of choice, he risked what we did. I would not want somebody to love me because they were, they're commanded to love me or because, because they were not 
free not to love me. And that's how it is with God. And in the course of then creating a world full of choice, then within his sovereignty, we can choose some things. And we have chosen many times sin. Maybe it's just me and John, but we have chosen sin. Have we not, brother? We have, and we're not proud of that. And we're getting better, and we're trying to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God so that we more resemble what the Bible talks about. But it's been a process for me. I expect it has been for you. Has it been for him, Angelo? Yes, I thought you would say that. And this is the, this is the whole process of sanctification. That There are very few instances in the Bible where God overruled free moral agency. One was with Pharaoh with the, uh, with the plagues, right? And he just wasn't given up. And, you know, and, and the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The sovereign will. He, so Pharaoh was edging over to the side where he was coming to the limits of God's sovereignty. So you, you, we can't choose outside of the limits of God's sovereignty, but we can choose a life within it, can't we? Who knows what I mean? And, and the life, the sweet spot's in the middle, right? And many times we get drifting around that. A person can actually choose, according to the Bible, to spend eternity in hell. A person can make that choice. That the offer of God is for our salvation through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the offer of God. And the Bible says that if we reject the Son, that we are condemned. He's condemned already, it says, because He has rejected the name of God's one and only Son. And so we actually, within the sovereignty of God, this is mind-blowing, but within the sovereignty of God, a person can choose the fate of their own eternity. We live in a fallen world, and both good and trouble are part of the experience, no matter what the TV preachers say. Good and bad are part of the experience. One of my favorite spots, maybe a little bit more on the lighter side, that was getting really intense, was that when, 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 you know, in the course of all this, God speaks to Job and he says, who is it that darkens my counsel without knowledge? I love this. I, I just love this when God speaks in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. So Job's going through this, and all of these guys are saying these things, and everybody's an expert about God and about good and evil, right? That's what's going on in this story. And then then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is it that darkens my counsel without words of knowledge? And he says to Job, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. I love the sarcasm of God, don't you? I just love the sarcasm of God. Heaven's going to be so fun just being sarcastic. Who marked off its... Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or... What were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? So he's saying, I don't recall seeing you there. You know so much. It's so graphic for me, this exchange. I can just see the whole thing happening. And so 
you know, the question that comes out of the book of Job is why do bad things happen to good people, right? That's what emerges. Why do bad things happen to good people? And they're giving all their answers. And God says, I may know more about this than you. It's just possible, since I'm God, (laughs) since you are my very idea, that I may know more about this than you. And so the Bible answers the question, why do bad things happen to good people very directly? And the answer is they don't. Bad things don't happen to good people. Because there are no good people. The Bible says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are we presenting ourselves to God as sinless? I should be exempt from anything bad? You see, what we're doing is we're evaluating according to our own standard of goodness. Someone even came to Jesus and said, good teacher. And he said, why do you call me good, even though he was? He said, only God is good. Isaiah said that our righteousness, does anybody know this, is as filthy rags. Filthy rags. Just a stinking pile of laundry. That's what we offer to God on our own. Why do bad things happen to us? Because we're in a fallen world. And there is, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. And what we try to do is apply a relative standard to it and say, yeah, but from my point of view, that person is better than this person. And so that bad thing should have happened over here, right? That's normal way to think, isn't it? And God's answer to that is, brace yourself like a man, I have some questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And at the end of the day, we have to trust in the character of God. The character of God. There's so many things about God that I can't get my head around. Because I'm, I'm trying to back into an understanding of God. I'm saying, I'm here on this earth, and this is my sense of justice. This is what I believe. And you're not conforming to it. And you know what he says back to me? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Surely you know all of this. And I'm, like you, driven down to a place of, amazing love of God through humble repentance. Who is it that darkens my counsel without knowledge? The other cool thing about this, I mean, there's lots of places we could stop, but he says that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Thwarted is a fun word. 42, chapter 42. Job finally replies to God after this drumming and he says then Job replied to the Lord I know that you can do all things you just hear his humility no plan of yours can be thwarted you ask who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful for me to know you said listen now and I'll speak I'll question you and you'll answer me my ears had heard of you but now my eyes have seen you 
Therefore, I despise myself. That sounds so, so just not cool for our culture, but he just comes to a sudden awareness of his humanity and repent in dust and ashes, which was the custom of the time. Now we repent in Jesus' blood. But he says, no plan of yours can be thwarted. If anybody ever had reason to think that maybe Satan can overpower God, look at my life. I have these boils. My family has been taken away. Maybe Satan can win. If ever there was a person who could think that, it would have been Job, yeah? But Job said just the opposite. He said, I know what it looks like here, but I also know who you are and the character and your power and your sovereignty. Job put his confidence not in his level of enjoyment or even in his own understanding. He says, I can't even wrap my head around this. But his confidence was in the supremacy of God. He said, no one is greater than you. No one. Beloved, we're sons and daughters of that living God through the blood of Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? Hot spot this morning, what part of this I want to invite really the Holy Spirit to come and lay on our hearts is Job 13, 15. In the midst of this, Job says the most amazing thing. Job is in a state of abject poverty and relentless pain. And in verse 15, speaking of God, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, yet will I hope in him, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, though God should kill me, though this should get worse than it is already, though I should die under the watchful eye of God, I'll trust him. Some of you are like, though he, what? I mean, in America, we can't even wrap our heads around that God would slay someone. That God would allow, right? God would never slay anybody. The Americanized version of the gospel actually bears such little resemblance to the Bible. God is the nice guy, right? God's the good guy. Satan's the bad guy. So anything bad must be from Satan, and God must... I don't know what God's doing. He doesn't fit in my pocket anymore, does he? And the American church just tries to present this version of God. It's the pocket Jesus. He's like an app. And, and the Bible, he doesn't fit that. I've noticed it seems like the softer, the softer the dish, the more popular it is in America anymore. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, here's how it's going to be when the Son of Man comes in his glory. He's going to put sheep on his right and goats on his left. And he tells what that's all about. And he says, he's going to say to the sheep, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Listen to what he says. These are the words of Jesus. He's going to say to the goats. Matthew 25 Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
This is not something we want to hear from Jesus. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't look after me. He's saying there's, there's no evidence in your life that I live in you. They will also answer, Lord, uh, when did we see a hungry, thirsty, or stranger, needing clothes, sick, in prison, didn't help you? You reply, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. And verse 46, I, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life? Is Matthew chapter 7 really right, where there were people coming to Jesus and said, Lord, We've been doing the whole thing. We've been casting out demons and we've been healing and stuff. And Jesus said to them, Away from me, you evildoers, you workers of iniquity. He said, I never knew you. This is just a side of God America doesn't seem to want to talk about. So this morning in my devotions... I'm just reading through the book of Revelation now, just in my quiet time with the Lord. And then I saw a great white horse, or a great white throne, with him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead and that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death, catch this, beloved, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Here's the part I don't want to read. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Oh, he slay me, yet will I trust him. You say, Tom, I don't want to hear that stuff. I, I take no real pleasure in bringing it. But if your house were on fire, I don't think you'd mind the noise outside. The church of God in America is on fire. We've sold out to the American marketing system and I just need to tell you that just need you to know. I know you trust me and we love each other. I just need you to know that if your life is right with Christ, you got nothing to fear. And if it's not, you need to get right with him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I've seen some of you go through such painful times with so much grace. Some of you have have 
gone through times that were so painful and I was there by your side, but I had to ask myself, if that were me, would I have that much grace? Some of you are going through times right now that are so painful and with so much grace. You look like Job to me. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Father, we ask whatever it is that you had in mind to do when you gathered this group of people in this room at this time. Like always, Lord, I, I, it's just whatever you were thinking is what we want to see happen next. We have no plan. We have no particular agenda. We have no real way of... We don't want to move people to do things that you're not doing in them. We have no skill to manipulate people or desire to do so. But we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit into every heart right now to speak the word that should be spoken to each one of us wherever we are, no matter how near or far from you we are. We freely confess that we are all in the same boat. We are all sinners in need of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our lives. Lord, this is not a religious thing for us. It's a real thing for us. It's a spiritual thing for us. We believe, Father, somehow, illogical as it may be in our culture, we somehow believe that you sit enthroned over the universe and that there is a heaven and a hell after this and that a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, is the only thing that makes the difference between the two. So I pray for the power of the cross just to be released in this room right now. Lord, I am not a prophet or even a student of prophecy. But it occurs to me, Lord, as your under-shepherd here with these people that you love and I love, that the days are drawing short. Spirit of God, come. Move in this house. Bring us to the place, Lord, that whatever happens next in our lives... We can say to you, though you slay me, yet will I trust you.